to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. I guess this isn't really technically hardcore Anders Lee because it's not really history. Well, sort of. I guess it's recent history. Yeah. Everything is, I suppose. Have histories all around us all the time. Oh, I'm touching it right now. Um, okay. It's, it is a Kratom Corner, though. <laughs> I like that one. No better. more, man. I fucking took a, I took a little dip into your world, and I don't, I don't, I didn't feel right. Did you throw up? No, I didn't throw up. Riley threw up. Um, I didn't feel terrible, but I also didn't really feel much. I only got the need weird more. euphoria. <laughs> I don't think I, I need more. Oh, God, it also tasted so bad. Yeah, you got to mix it with stuff. Did I have pineapple juice in this. It actually tastes pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Weren't you, like, throwing up, like, when you first were doing it? I've thrown up a few. I mean, it happens. You <laughs> no, just got to. No, 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 no. That isn't something you just casually you don't go. Thro- you never throw happens. up from, you don't throw up from alcohol? No, I'm not a puker, man. I wish I was, cause like. Well, then maybe you won't throw up from this. Well, every time I get like too fucked up on booze, I wish I could throw up, but I just have such a fucking bad like. I, I don't have a gag. Re- I have a gag reflex, like the. I don't have enough of one to where it makes me throw up or something. I can't. I usually can't, and then I just feel sick. And I can't do that shit where you like stick your finger down your throat. That's like weird yeah, alcoholic shit where you're just like. All right, time to go to work. Blah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, every once in a while, I'll puke. If I have really bad allergies and my throat's closed up, and I try to do a shot and it goes down the wrong, like pipe. Oh yeah. I'll just like immediately have to run to a fucking toilet or something. But uh, but I don't enjoy it. <laughs> it's always funny, but I don't. You know, generally, kind of it sucks. Well, this you feel pretty good, like right after you throw up. Uh. Like you just, <laughs> it just you're just back to normal. Where with alcohol, you're fucking blah, and you're still high from it too. It still feels good. It's, it's after, just, yeah. even if you puke, you're still high from the kratom. Not as high, but you depending on how long ago you took it. You what you what I learned I have to avoid is drinking a bunch and then eating right after, because then you throw up. But if you wait a few hours, it feels really good to eat. <laughs> and you feel very relaxed, uh, or if you have food before, you, you do it on a full stomach, then you feel good. If you had to describe what kratom feels like to a non-kratom person, like what, what, what would you say? Like you're ejaculating out of every pore of your body at the same time. <laughs> you said that immediately. That's my that's my pitch. So that's why. Okay, I mean that's that's pretty uh, convincing. Yeah, we gotta get the. The stuff from the guy who was offering. Oh yeah, it's on my to-do list. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna email him. Cool. But if there's a way you could do it express because I gotta leave in a little over a week. You sound like a junkie. I am, <laughs> but a good junkie, on a good you know. I'm going to a country where I don't know if any uh, customs authorities in the UK are listening, but they have um, they have banned my preferred substance <laughs> uh, to oppress me. And uh, <laughs> I got There's gotta, a picture of you at the airport. And shit. Yeah, like this guy likes having too much fun. <laughs> okay, Jeez. well, yeah. I will email our fans who hit us up about kratom, and I'll blow up there once once I remember their names. I'll advertise their company, um, and hopefully we'll get that in time for you to get your fix yeah. and go be a junkie. Yeah. <laughs> What was I going to say? Oh, Anders Lee. You know about the other Anders Lee? No. <laughs> Haven't I told you about this? No. There is another Anders Lee from Minnesota who is my same age, uh, class of 09 from high school, who uh, was a hockey and football star. So I've been hearing about this guy since I was 14 years old. He was a freshman at the St. Thomas Academy hockey team, and he was like an MVP as a freshman. <laughs> 
uh, went on to become a very successful quarterback at Edina High School, uh, gets drafted into the NHL right as I'm about to move here by the New York Islanders. Whoa. So he has followed me. Oh, this weird. parallel Anders Lee has followed me from Minnesota to New York, and he just fucking re-signed. So I have to be... And I've been hearing about him for over 10 years. Whoa. I don't really like my own name because it's like, I don't know. You know, I'm just one of those people. But... um. But there are a lot of people with my name in Texas because there's a shit ton of Flores and, like, a lot of Mexican people are Catholic and they name their kids just shit from the Bible. Yeah. So um, there was another Jake Flores. I've told this story in a couple podcasts, so I'll just, like, be brief about it. But there's like there was a website called Help Jake Flores Walk. It was just about a guy, like, <laughs> in an accident. <laughs> and, like, and, like, it was, like, really weird Googling myself and then going, like, am I going to... Fuck with this GoFundMe, you know? Yeah, th- you made a mistake by going with feral jokes on Venmo. Well, the reason I, gotten this, the reason I oh shit, I should have went with <laughs> yeah, help, help Jake Flores walk. Right. Uh, I went with the reason I had to come up with that with this like anagram thing is because um, my website got stolen by Dan Nine, and I'm pretty sure <laughs> I'm pretty sure like I can't prove it, but he does a th- I someone called me and then told me, you know. I've acquired your domain name, and I'm interested in selling it back to you for $800. And I told him to suck my dick, and I hung up the phone. And then <laughs> years later, I heard that Dan Ninen does that to comedians. He just, like, waits for them to not be able to pay for their domain names so that he can try to send it back to them. So I'm pretty sure it was him. Um, and I went, fuck you. I'll just come up with something else instead. Yeah. I got creative, and I really liked it, so I kept it. Um, but also, also, there was another guy born in the same hospital as me on the same day named Jacob Flores, right? And I didn't find out about this until I applied for, like, student loans and shit to go to college. Right. And I went to UTSA, right? So I was born in San Antonio. I grew up in Houston. Went back to San Antonio for college, right? And, uh, and then, I, like, I was involved in this long thing where I was, like, trying to track down my actual birth certificate. Because, like, something didn't match. Like, my social security number on my birth certificate it didn't match or something like that. Anyway, like, a year later, I figured out that me and this dude's social security numbers got switched or our birth certificates got switched. Something got switched, and um, and then I tracked him down, and it turns out at one point, neither of us knowing this, we lived in the same apartment complex in the same unit. I was upstairs, and he was downstairs. Whoa. Yeah, it's fucking crazy, man. So you you could have been like, hey, I'm, uh, I'm not behind on rent. Just paid it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Anyways, uh, we should get into... We should talk about this book, man. Yeah. Uh, yes. We've Got People. Not We Got People, which I thought it was. I was looking for it in the bookstore, and I was like, We Got People, and there's a uh, apostrophe, V-E after the W-E. Um, this is a book I'm very... I was very excited to read. I'm already uh, pretty far into it. Um, I got it... I, actually, based on the appearance of this book, how long would you say I've owned it? Oh, that looks beat up, dude. That looks like you... Uh, I'd say, you know, that's like a good year. Three days. Wow, dude. This is what it's like to be owned by Anderson. Just Kratom? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and vomit? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I got to work on this. Uh, sorry to all the librarians I've wronged over the years uh, out there <laughs> listening. Um, but this is a book I've been waiting for, for something like this, for a very long time. It's about... The uh, history of progressive movements trying to infiltrate the Democratic Party or trying to use the Democratic Party, be Democrats, take over the Democratic Party, that relationship, that dynamic. Sure. Um, And it's by Ryan Grimm, who is now the, I think, the chief politics reporter for The Intercept and for a long time wrote for Huffington Post. Uh, And he uh, has written this book, which... Some say have has have sparked has sparked somewhat of a a controversy. Uh, Maureen Dowd, who we talked about last week on the show, um, has sort of uh, really she's the one who sparked this quote unquote civil war in the Democratic Party because she uh, interviewed Pelosi and printed her little jab at the at the squad. Um, but she is blaming Grimmy for writing this book and sparking uh, the Civil War, which like ended in Trump tweeting racist shit about uh, these four 
uh, awesome congresswoman. Interesting. Yeah. So, but she says, so they're in kind of a spat right now, I guess. Um, but uh, she's basically relying on the um, the old trope, which he, he really debunks pretty thoroughly in, in this book, that the Democrats can't go too far to the left politically or legislatively, or they will lose big. Yeah. Uh, and this is in response to him. Maureen Dowd writes, Frustration with the refusal to stand up for principles is boiling over among, her, among younger Democrats on issue after issue, impeachment, Medicare for all, minimum wage, Green New Deal. The answer from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other Democratic leaders is consistent. Now is not the time. The country isn't ready. Push too far, too fast, and there will be a backlash. Uh, which... Oh, wait, this is, sorry, this is Ryan Grimm responding to Maureen Dowd. Um, and so she's, yeah, just relying on this this uh, old trope, uh, which really um, goes back a while, but the, the starting point that um, Grimm uses is in the 80s. Uh, and uh, he, uh, in, the, in the beginning chapter, he talks about... Um, a mayoral campaign in uh, Chicago in which Harold Washington, who went on to become the first black mayor, uh, was running in the Democratic primary. And uh, the entire Democratic machine uh, backed somebody else. The, uh, they even fly in Ted Kennedy, who's a big f- uh, figure in the book in a lot of different ways. Yeah. They fly him in to campaign against Harold Washington. Uh, and Jesse Jackson is on Team Washington. He's a clergyman from, from Chicago, and he, he really wants to see uh, the first black mayor and, and advance some progressive causes. Uh, and he says, come on, like what, uh, Senator Kennedy, why are you doing this? And Kennedy has to say, well, it's an old family friend. I kind of have an obligation here uh, to the, the Chicago Democratic Party. And, he's, and Jackson's like, what are we, chopped liver? Um, the obligation stems back to 1960 when uh, Chicago, the Daily Machine, basically stole the election for John F. Kennedy. They yeah. stuffed ballots and shit, got him elected, uh, the beat Nixon at the time. So, uh, oh, oh, so here's the, backing up a second, sorry. This is Maureen Dowd who says in the pages of the New York Times, this, she's quoting her, her spin class. Um, and, and on the screen, in the spin class, they put like quotes, inspirational quotes. And one of them is, you climb the mountain to see the world. You don't climb the mountain so the world can see you. I only wished AOC was cycling alongside me to hear it as well. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez encircled me. I don't know what the fuck that means. <laughs> from the start. I love the bartender makes good Cinderella story, the shake-up, the capital idealistic dreams, the bravado about how the plutocrat president from Queens wouldn't know how to deal with a Puerto Rican girl from the Bronx. And I imagined the most potent feminist partnership in American history, Nancy Pelosi as sensei, bringing her inside game and AOC, the karate kid with a wicked Twitter game. <laughs> that sucks so hard. That's what so many people thought. Yeah, I remember reading all those tweets and like cringing real hard yeah, at them. Because this is news to um, most of the American left, I would say. Maybe not most, but a huge chunk of the voting left. Um, they think they're on the same page. That yeah. you, why would there be any. Uh, there would only be daylight between uh, a Pelosi and an Ocasio-Cortez. Well, a lot of people, you know, sort of like are um, only sort of lazily engaged in politics and honestly like don't. I think that, you know, most people, if they could really admit it, would tell you, would probably come to the conclusion that this is like just kind of replacing whatever sports is for yeah. a lot of other people, you know. Uh, and I say that because of like cable news having sort of just a sensational narrative to a lot of things most people aren't like 
you know, reading a lot of like really like in depth theory and stuff like that. I mean, I have to force myself to. It's it working yeah. now because I have like a fucking podcast where it's like, oh, I make money off it and shit. It's a fucking hard thing to keep track of. So like, it's fucking frustrating. But it's also a byproduct of the way our society is set up mm-hmm. of like the alienation you have within liberalism under your own government and how you're not really directly, you know, connected to anything. Um, and so, like, I, it's inevitable that so, a bunch of dumb fucking people or a bunch of just disengaged people are going to think something like that. That is so frustrating for us living here in New York and having, like, been around, like, the AOC campaign, you know? I was fucking keep track of that shit when it was happening, like, before she yeah. got elected and when she had a fucking rose emoji in her Twitter bio and everything. And, uh, you know, the same people that that argued against a lot of the politics she's talking about and sort of framed everything as like what we're going to talk about here though it's too progressive or whatever now take credit for her right. like being a thing or whatever and so you know it's, it's a fucking it's a blood curdling sort of like leap of logic to watch someone go through you know yeah well i see i remember phone banking for her and it was a pretty easy sell like i just said i remember this one woman had never heard of her like a lot of people and she was just, I, I just said, she's a young Latina woman who uh, doesn't take any corporate money and uh, she wants to transform American politics, make it uh, more based on people. We've got people, not not the corporate dollars. And she was just like, sure, such an easy sell. Yeah. Um, if you ask that, but I don't know, if you ask that same person about Nancy Pelosi, there's a good chance she thinks, oh yeah, same stuff. Yeah, she wants sure. the same stuff. Sure. Um, maybe that's just me being sexist, but... Uh, <laughs> Who knows? Well, listen, we're definitely going to be sexist on this podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that like is uh, symptomatic of a sort of haze or fatigue that people yeah. get because like you know during the uh, the great 2016 primary fucking uh, the Great War, you know, yeah. back then, yeah. I do remember a lot of people I was arguing with about Bernie and Hillary would say. Well, they're the same, though, right? Oh they God. want the same things. And you'd go, and I understand how they got to that conclusion because that's why they're so mad. They think, well, these two things are exactly the same. Therefore, this person just likes the one that's a guy. That must be the deciding factor. And then right. you would go, the whole reason that this argument is happening is because I don't see these two things as the same. Right. I'm paying attention to the fucking politics, you know? Yeah. No, it's because I don't want to be labeled an anti-Semite. That's right. <laughs> but We've got to privilege one over the other. It's really funny because we never extend these sort of arguments over to, like, Republicans, you know? Yeah. It would be crazy to be like, what? They're all the same, right? You know? <laughs> but, like, if they're all Democrats, I mean... Right. I guess, yeah, it's just this weird assumption that we have that they're all the same. You know? Yeah, and that's what I think one of the huge positive things about Bernie's 26 candidacy is it illuminated this sort of hemorrhage that always existed, um, but that was kind of under the surface, that most people who didn't really pay close attention to this stuff were just completely unaware of, that there might be a pretty stark ideological difference between uh, members of the Democratic Party uh, as well as uh, the base and the leadership. Because you ask, I think, honestly, most people voting for... Joe Biden, if you ask them, do you want universal health care and a Green New Deal? A lot of them would say, yeah. Uh, a lot of the same people supporting Hillary Clinton probably would have said the same thing. I remember when Obama was president, when he was running, when I was a teenager, uh, people assumed he was for that stuff. Yeah. They assumed he was, yeah, we'll get all the troops out of Iraq, we'll pass universal health care, which intuitively just means, yeah, free health care like every other fucking country. Yeah. People don't really, th- and I remember that was a big revelation for me as I was starting to get interested in this stuff, is I would hear politicians saying universal health care, universal health care. was like, oh, so like a government-run system. And then I remember reading, just the, uh, the New York Times had this layout of all the politicians' different plans. And I was like, wait. There's nobody except for Dennis Kucinich who actually wants this, who wants a full, you know, government-run system. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that that's existed for a long time, that tension, and that this that's what this book is about. Uh, so back to the 80s, the Chicago machine, after Harold Washington pretty narrowly wins the Democratic primary— Backs the Republican 
against him. So forget the spoiler thing, third party. They're going full other side. Yeah. Uh, And Jesse Jackson is witnessing all of this. Wait, I'm sorry. Uh, He won the primary? Harold Washington. Who who became mayor of Chicago, won the Democratic primary. He was the one that the Democrats were not supporting. Right. Okay, so he won the primary, so the only way for the machine to oppose him is to go with the the Republicans. Okay, I follow. Yep. Uh, So Jackson sees all of this, and, you know, at the time, there's sort of a... uh, The the Democratic Party is kind of in having some... like the idea of a bunch of mobsters, like, Hey, we're Republicans now! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Give me that elephant cigar. Um, but uh, so Jackson is saying that we that the progressive left in America needs to run a presidential candidate in 1994. And they need to run a black presidential candidate. Because at the time, uh, and Grimm goes through this in the book, there's some different constituencies. There's old... Uh, labor Democrats who are like, you know, because during Vietnam, you had this weird thing where like the left, it was just kind of all over the place. There were people like Johnson who were very, very uh, progressive on government spending, on uh, anti-poverty initiatives, on civil rights, and then were uh, imperialists. He was, you know, um, oversaw the the war in Vietnam, as well as the bombing of Cambodia, somewhat. I think maybe that was next. Anyway, uh, but and then you have anti-war people, uh, Eugene McCarthy, um, George McGovern, who people always point to as the reason the Democrats can't run a left-wing candidate is yeah. because McGovern got swamped in 1972, absolutely obliterated. Uh, but what they don't mention is that. He was pretty anti-labor. Uh, he was very anti-war, and he did support some like food stamps and stuff. But he did not have the backing of the labor unions, and some of that was his fault. But it was also the labor unions were run by people like George Meany, very apropos last name. The guy refused to back. He was the head of AFL-CIO and refused to back McGovern, which at the, at the time yeah, unions, see, it wasn't just him. It was also the fucking. The AFL-CIO refusing to yeah. back him that also just led to that not working. Right, shit. right, right. And there were unions back then, as opposed to now, where they, like, they, a huge get-out-the-vote operation. Like, that's if you're a Democrat, that's how you win, is with the help of unions. Well, especially back then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you... Uh, so he didn't he didn't stand a chance and and you also had more more and more Democrats going into the 80s who were uh, anti-interventionist but also neoliberal. Uh, it was kind of this weird thing, which, you know, today... Um, and that's why I really think... Th- one of the reasons I think Bernie is so exciting is because... And Jackson was, too. Is because he's uniting all of these different left-wing causes. Um, you know, people point to Roosevelt as being the sort of left-wing savior, FDR. And it's true, yeah. On New Deal, great. Uh, but at the same time, he was also like pro oil industry, the, obviously the internment of, of the Japanese Americans. Um, and that's because like, it's only relatively recently that the two parties have become ideologically coherent. Uh, like it was just a mishmash of different interest groups on either side. Did you listen to the Christmas thing about that? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. Um, so in the 80s, Jackson t- wants to mobilize the uh, disenfranchised people, like a lot of people of color in America, in addition to, to poor people and uh, progressive whites. He wants to do the Rainbow Coalition, which we have uh, covered on the show before. And uh, it's a little hard to say what was going on with Jackson the man, because as we talked about, he's a bit, of a, he's a bit full of himself. So uh, Jackson runs 1984, uh, gets in pretty late, and um, runs on a very progressive platform. He wants uh, gay rights, single payer, free community college. He talks about reparations for for descendants of slaves. uh, And he wants to redirect the attention on the war on drugs, which is 
in in really at its height in the 80s. Uh, he wants to redirect the attention to the banks that are setting up the money laundering instead of uh, the the on the street criminals. Um, Mondale wins the primary. He does not win the general election, uh, and he campaigns on. And this is another straw man that they bring up that, or not a straw man, just like a dumb, easily refutable argument that Mondale was this le- ran as this lefty loon, uh-huh. and we needed uh, a more progressive, uh, or sorry, a more centrist nominee, and then we would have stood a better chance against Reagan. Um, he ran. Applauding, this is from Ryan Grimm, applauding Reagan's invasion of Grenada, saying he'd be tougher than Reagan on the Soviet Union, and promising to cut spending and attack the deficit. The only promise he made that was traditionally associated with liberal Democrats was to raise taxes. And Mondale here says, by the end of my first term, I will reduce the Reagan budget deficit to two-thirds. He vowed during his acceptance speech to the Congress... My message is, we must, must cut taxes and pay as we go. And there's this quote uh, from, I think, one of the debates where uh, Reagan's complaining about Democrats wanting to raise taxes. And Mondale says, like, well, we got to balance the budget. Here, and he even says, you know, Reagan, hypocrite, he's going to raise your taxes. Here's the difference. Oh, we're both going to raise your taxes. I'm going to tell you the truth. I just did. I just told you that I'm going to raise your taxes. So, uh, as you can imagine, not a uh, hugely, wildly successful strategy there. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. Basically, the worst of both worlds. We are going to cut spending and raise taxes. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to take Fis- away stuff that liberal, helps you. socially conservative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Mondale uh, only wins Minnesota, and I'm sorry to the folks back home who who still stand Walt, but uh, gotta <laughs> bear the bad news. Yeah, I mean he was fucking Carter's vice president, so just four years prior, this guy had been routed by Ronald Reagan, and we're gonna nominate someone from his cabinet, like instead of doing a clean break. Uh, it doesn't even have to be with. Jackson, although that would have been my preference, but, you know, at least somebody who's going to give you something new. Because Carter, um, we, we look back on him with sort of rosy eye shades when you compare him, of course, to Republican presidents, but also to Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, because in many ways, especially on foreign policy, Carter was uh, more of a progressive. But his administration was vehemently anti-labor. Uh, there's a quote from someone in his cabinet that who says they want the UAW to, quote-unquote, feel pain. They thought the unions had too much power in Washington. They were just, they looked at them like all other special interests um, and was a deficit hawk. And, a, and he began deregulation. There's a lot of, uh, there's some deregulation like the airline stuff that was good because there was like a, because it was very tightly regulated and that like was making prices high and just was shitty. So he deregulated the airlines. That was good. But he started deregulating the banks and really... Reagan, as Grimm, Ryan Grimm points out, uh, just picked up on a trend that Carter started and, and extended beyond him. Can um, I ask you a question about yeah. Carter? I, this is kind of my take on him, but I'm also not a fucking huge historian and huge wonk or whatever. But, I mean, he almost seems like in a lot of ways because he like kind of kind of fizzled out and also was associated with a lot more progressive stuff on his face that he then did a disservice to some of the the identity of being like a more progressive democrat because like you know like it almost like the obama effect where it's like uh well I don't know the obama effect but like the fact that he didn't fulfill a lot of shit then makes people weary like the next time someone like that comes around because he would well sort I, I would of say he disappointed his constituents I guess is what I'm saying yeah i think that's fair but because like so carter ran a very vague campaign. He was a Southern evangelical and just, he would say, and I think we said this in the Matt Christman episode, that his he said, they would ask him, well, hey, what's your foreign policy? And he, and he said, we need a foreign policy that's as good as the American people. Like, that was it. It was yeah. just like this platitudinous, vague shit. So another big character in the book is Mr. Rahm Emanuel, who 
is also from Chicago. He's married to Rahm Emanuel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Rahm, Rahm Emanuel. Okay. I mean, kind of. He's, like, pretty full of himself. He's the villain, for sure, in this fucking thing. He comes sort of out of movement politics in Chicago, but has to make a decision. Do I pursue that, or do I pursue, pursue the electoral route? And has several, like, internships and stuff uh, in within the Democratic Party. And at one point, I think volunteers for the IDF <laughs> goes to Israel to fight some people. <laughs> so he mailed a... He's basically talks about how Rom is an asshole and is proudly uh, a dick to people and is loud, swears a lot. That's a well-known thing about Rahm Emanuel is he, he is a filthy mouth. But... Grimm's point is that this is kind of bluster because after he's done screaming at you, he really doesn't know what... He's, he's an idiot. He fucks up a lot and gives people what they want as long as they're to his right. He loves making concessions to the right. He doesn't do it to the left, but he's, he's, he is equally probably mean to right-wingers, but he will let them have what they want. There's a scene in the book where uh, he's, the, he's really mad at the blue dogs for kind of undermining Obama during the uh, healthcare debate. Yeah. And he's like screaming at them, swearing at them, uh, flipping a shit. And then afterwards he's like, okay, but you can have a, your meeting with Obama and we'll put in that amendment for you. Yeah. Uh, so just give it away. And there's a um, story about him sending a dead fish. <laughs> To one of his rivals. Uh, <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> I don't know. So he was, he, well, he got mad at his pollster for losing him an election in 1988. And so he sends him a dead fish. <laughs> Which the pollster says is, quote unquote, bogus and had more to do with, with money. Um, and he complains that uh, Emmanuel was, like, giving away gigs to his fucking cronies and... Uh, so, uh, Ryan Grimm writes, Far from being an example of Emmanuel's steely-eyed ruthlessness, Rom's touchstone anecdote merely exposes him as one more party hack, doling out cash to friends, losing in the process, and going after anybody who speaks up. So, throughout the Clinton years, he, he, he helps to do things like pass NAFTA. He's just like a party bigwig. And then he finally gets elected to Congress in 2002, and he does it on a pro-war platform. And then, because he's so damn good at raising money, Pelosi makes him the head of the DCCC in 2006. This is like a Tarantino movie. <laughs> All these horrible characters keep being introduced. Yeah. He, there should be a movie about him getting beat up. It should be like Inglorious Bastards, but instead of <laughs> Nazis, it's like Occupy, what, the, I don't know. Yeah, dude, it's about Antifa, the real Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> or no, I'm sorry, Antifa is the Inglorious Bastards in this scenario, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So... But yeah, I'm saying is, you know, these people suck. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that he does. I was just imagining Rahm Emanuel's name flying across the screen and like black exploitation music playing. <laughs> <laughs> like funk. <laughs> right. So his mantra in 2006 is money, money, money. He says to the staffers, the first thir third of your campaign is money, money, money. The second third is money, money, and money. And the last third is votes, press, and money. <laughs> and Grimm points out, notice that field organizing, door knocking, having an inspiring message, all the things that got AOC elected, yeah. they don't make it onto the list. And he says in 2006, he tells all the people he plucks, um, and most of them are, a lot of them are veterans, people who served in Iraq in the military, and one of his uh, confidants says that they love the idea, they just love the image of these macho military people beating Republicans. Uh, they're just kind of obsessed fanboys of that imagery. And they recruit a lot of fairly right-wing people because they're veterans to run for Congress. And this is appearing, it appears to be successful. And there's a book that comes out called The Thumpin', which is all about how Rahm Emanuel uh, just 
beat the Republicans in 2006 in this wave. What they don't acknowledge is that the wave could have been a fucking tsunami. It could have, uh, you know, drowned all of the Republicans in Congress. They really could have um, taken a lot of more people out. But they want to run to the middle. And uh, in the beginning, Rahm Emanuel says that don't say you're against the Iraq war. Say you want a quote-unquote new direction in Iraq. Yeah. Be vague about it. Then he, one of the few times he's he's acknowledged he was wrong is that actually didn't work out too well. And uh, they were doing better when they ran against the war, when they had a clear, comprehensible message. So there's a lot of examples here about how Emmanuel, people would come to him and say, you know, for instance, there's a politician in North Carolina who uh, was named uh, Miller, and he was like a local politician, local uh, uh, state senator, I believe. And uh, Emmanuel says, no, fuck that. We need a we need a veteran. Fuck that guy. Um, so they recruit some guy who one of his first speeches when he's trying to run the Democratic primaries is saying that like abortion leads to promiscuity and like and he's like anti-gay and all this stuff that just doesn't float with primary voters even in North Carolina sure and they try to go back to this Miller guy and they say look uh, sorry we're wrong you can you can run you can run and he says I'm not going to now <laughs> uh, and so they end up nominating the school teacher who goes on to be elected uh, so he does win as a Democrat actually no he loses that year he loses, and Miller probably would have won. And then in 2008, he is elected and uh, goes on to be a thorn in the Democratic caucus's side. So he votes against Obamacare and all these, like, liberal initiatives. And if they had nominated Miller, not only would he have won in 06, he would have been a reliable vote. So he shot himself in the foot there. The mm-hmm. top three recipients of DCCC money in 2006 running for Congress all lost. Uh, there's a lot more examples. Yarmouth, John Hall of Hall & Oates, people who Emanuel wrote off as being kooky. They were too left-wing, and they won without his help. There are even more who came extremely close and didn't win because he didn't want to help them. So I would encourage everybody, if you're going to read one chapter, read The Political Genius. If you're hanging around in a bookstore, uh, just pick up... We've got people read chapter six and memorize these statistics as they're, you know, a lot of because to me, the most important takeaway for any of the stuff when you're arguing with centrists is to yank the argument away that they are more electable, that a centrist is more electable. It's not true. Bill Clinton won in 1992 and 1996 because Ross Perot was in the race. There's no there's very little historical precedent for centrist Democrats winning elections. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, they use, like, uh, Clinton as sort of, a like, a reference point. Yeah. And, yeah, there are things about you can analyze about that race that, I mean, I guess the way, like, I, the way I think a centrist looks at Clinton is, like, that was probably, like, a point in history where just, like, no Democrat could possibly win again unless they sort of, like, went talking around both sides of their mouths around the country the way he sort of, you know, did. And, like, uh, and then therefore you have to be, you know, this tricky neoliberal or whatever. Um, and then, like you said, the other thing that they always use is this reference point of McGovern having yeah. been, like, this huge disaster. But, you know, these are specific uh, races that have all these factors that don't get really brought in and um and it's just not you know it's not true when you look at it a million other races and a million other uh smaller things and at the presidential level you know you had barack obama who uh say what you will about him when he became president but you know wait wasn't exactly running a moderate campaign that's okay yeah that's a good point i want to bring up is because okay so also in recent history in more recent history you know Fucking everyone's just acting like Hillary didn't lose, and she fucking <laughs> yeah. did. It was like this huge fucking thing. Obama is an example of someone who ran on more progressive shit, and then just didn't do it when he got into <laughs> office. Right. So that proves that people will vote for something if they think that that you know that it's actually going to happen. And then fucking first and foremost, everyone 
should be looking at the fact that Donald fucking Trump won. Yeah. <laughs> saying he was going to build a wall he hasn't built and shit. Electability means nothing. All this shit. You don't have to do any yeah. of the shit that you were going to said you were going to do, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, so there's, you know, yeah, I, I would call bullshit anytime someone uh, says, you know, you can't you can't promise people um, a pie in the sky or whatever. I mean, you literally can. No one will check whether you actually <laughs> did, you know? Um, but also you should probably, it would be cool if you meant it too, you know? Yeah. Real quick, apologies to Rick Glazier. I just mixed up Miller and Rick Glazier. That was the progressive guy who would have won, and uh, Miller was the veteran idiot. I'm an idiot. Uh, uh, they're going to be so pissed. Ugh. So, meanwhile, you have the rise of MoveOn.org, uh, which actually started in 1998 during the Clinton impeachment, um, but really took off during the Bush years. So you have this online left that's beginning in the mid-2000s, and a big linchpin for it was Howard Dean. Now, as Ryan Grimm makes very clear in the book, Howard Dean himself, not a very progressive guy. Now we know him as the corporate stooge uh, who goes on MSNBC and trashes the left. But I, I think, remember him from The Scream. Yeah, <laughs> which is that, that guy who, that, who was presented was cool. I like that guy who was <laughs> this raged uh, fired up progressive. Yeah. He sounded like a witch. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he was, so he was uh, governor of Vermont, very left-wing states. He, because he was not in Congress, didn't vote for the Iraq war. And so he had the luxury of saying that he would have been against it. Uh, I find that sort of dubious. And he talked about health care. He did not talk about single-payer health care. That's definitely like a, I would have kicked your ass if I was there, dude, yeah. sort of thing. Right, right. He, I, he, well, I'm I, sure he would have voted for the war. If I wasn't on probation right now, that sort of thing. Yeah. So because of those sort of mostly image-based symbolic things, all this anti-Bush energy gets channeled into the Dean campaign. It uh, flounders. But even though the candidate was bad and would have led... Uh, uh, went on to disappoint the left badly had he been elected. There is this infrastructure that begins in 2003-2004. The online model of campaigning. Dean didn't really understand this so much. It was bloggers, people like that who supported him. And Netroots Nation started, which is now kind of, I mean, in some ways has changed, but more so, I think, the uh, left has just gotten more left and outpaced it. But you have uh, all these factors coming into play. And so that becomes a big point of organizing against Bush and going into the Obama era. So Harry Reid, who was not the most left-wing senator, starts adopting more progressive policies because he realizes that that's where the energy is, is that's where the activists are, they're online. And so he gets people in his office who come right out of the grassroots. And so... During his career, Harry Reid is actually uh, kind of an ally to to the uh, Podnam Americas of the world because he, you know, for one, he made he was pretty instrumental in getting the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. He really fought for a public option. He fought for a strong banking bill. Um, but a lot of these things were undermined, uh, not necessarily by Obama, but the Obama administration, namely Rom Muffuggin Emanuel. <laughs> so, um, right when Obama comes into office, we all remember, there was seething anger at the banks. People were absolutely livid. Uh, and at the time, there was bonuses. There were bonuses that went out to all these banks that had just crashed the global economy. And I remember this, seeing on the news... People, all walks of life, all different political persuasions were livid with this shit. They had just received billions of dollars in bailout money, and they're giving themselves fucking bonuses. Yeah. Chuck Grassley, a Republican from Iowa, said that uh, the bankers should do a Japanese style, I think it was, and they should either resign or commit suicide. <laughs> so, Geithner, of course, is Obama's Treasury Secretary... Because I think Obama raised so much money from Wall Street, a lot of them went into his cabinet. He had ties to the financial service industry. Geithner, who I don't think had... He, he was a, a public official, but was still very friendly with Wall Street. 
and Rahm Emanuel as well, worked in banking, and they thought that there were, quote-unquote, constitutional issues with a clawback, meaning they didn't think it was... They had a philosophical objection to the government seizing that money, seizing the bonus money, or taxing it at a high rate. They didn't think that was right because of their weird legal reasoning. So this is Chris Dodd talking about that experience. Dodd, who who, who was on the uh, Senate Banking Committee, uh, and he says he recalls very vividly going to some meeting in the basement of a garage, and my old friend Rama Emanuel, he spent 15 minutes working for me in 1992. We had a shouting match. Rahm was arguing very strenuously that he wanted the whole provision out, and I vehemently disagreed. Anyway, the administration didn't give up, and unbeknown to me entirely, they convinced a person on the staff to delete a section of that sentence of the amendment. I never knew about it. So Emmanuel got one of his lackeys to go in and just delete the fucking part that said we were going to take the bonuses back. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Shitty. Yeah, and there's a big um, push at the time to nationalize. This was such a golden fucking opportunity that the Obama administration squandered. I mean, from their perspective, they didn't squander it because that's, you know, they saved it. They saved the bank, the institution of too big to fail banks. But there was a push to nationalize. Yeah, people. Just banks? Greenspan, Alan Greenspan, Mr. Free Market, was talking about. He, he said it wouldn't be a bad idea to actually nationalize the fucking banks that are getting the bailout money. Jesus Christ. I don't remember that because, I mean, I was, like, probably, you know, fucking drunk or something for that entire year. But, yeah, damn. Yeah. <laughs> that is crazy to think because it's fairly recently and it's, like, in the memory of our lives. And uh, now it is something that people would say, oh, it's a bridge too far. You right, know. right. Yeah, so Obama, I don't think he wants to go that far, but he is, like... He wants to do something. And Christina Romer, who's one of the more progressive members of Obama's economic team, and actually Larry Summers, who's a a bad dude, he sucks, they did say that they wanted to split the financial institutions into, quote-unquote, good banks and bad banks. So the bad bank would separate out the toxic assets, putting them in a publicly run institution, and would be freed from pressure to foreclose the mortgages, which were far underwater, and they could be renegotiated with the, the homeowner. So that would help slow foreclosures, would have got the housing market back on track, and it would have been a, a quote-unquote lifeline for the millions of people who are caught in the crisis, and a sign also that Obama was serious about this. So Obama says, look, uh, we got to do this. I'm sick of dragging our, our feet here. We got to take action. And he says to his economic squad, look, I'm going to get a haircut and have dinner with my family. You've heard me. When I come back, I want this issue resolved. So Obama leaves the room. Then Rahm Emanuel says, Everyone shut the fuck up. (laughs) Let me be clear. Taking down the banking system in a program that could cost $700 billion is a fantasy. Listen, it's not going to fucking happen. We have no fucking credibility, so give it up. The job of everyone in this room is to move the president when he gets back toward a solution that works. Oh, he's a Tarantino character. Yeah. Just a fucking... Everybody suck my dick. (laughs) So he is personally responsible for millions of people losing their homes. Yeah. He's he's just been a constant thorn in the side of anything cool Obama, like, kind of wanted to do. So the public option, when that that was kind of floundering for a bit, he goes through pretty thoroughly about that process of the public option being a part of the health care it going away then it came back again when there were actual senators who were on board because the house didn't think they could pass it and there's a petition that goes out where you know um there are a few senators that democratic senators who were signing a pledge that they wanted health care reform to include a public option Rahm Emanuel who is uh missing one of his middle fingers <laughs> from a deli accident when he was a teenager. He has a meeting <laughs> with a couple of these people at a restaurant yeah. and gives them a double bird. With one stump. With one of a, a stump, yeah. <laughs> Fucking rules. <laughs> I mean, that's, he sucks, but it's funny. Yeah. It's funny that that happened. <laughs> so, yeah, of course, it, it's so 
that that part of the book is really hard to read. Just seeing how badly they squandered this shit, and seeing how Emmanuel has gotten away scot free. He went on to be mayor of Chicago, was reelected. He got, you know, and then he decided not to run again. And he, you know, he would have had to face all the awful shit he's done yeah. with murder from the Chicago Police Department, covering up a fucking murder of a black kid. He's gotten away with it. But meanwhile, you do have. A an online left, which is small, but it is uh, getting more and more vocal as the Obama administration's true colors start to come out, and they want a banking bill. Um, it's been a year at this point since the financial crisis, and in many ways, sort of a tactical mistake to not do that before healthcare reform. I don't think that made a ton of sense. It took a fucking year to get the ACA passed during which time there was like a, a pretty big consensus that you needed to do something on regulations pretty quickly with banks. So the House of Representatives, because of Rahm, Rahm Emanuel, is so thoroughly filled with uh, pro-banking Democrats that the version of a, bank, a banking bill that they pass is actually to the right of what the Senate wants, which is, like, unheard of. Usually the House is where the, the good stuff gets going, and then the Senate is where it goes to cool down. Yeah. But in this case, there were even Republicans who were like, wait a minute, we need something better than this. And they managed to pass Dodd-Frank in, in 2010, uh, which includes despite the protestations of people like Timothy Geithner, a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, which is going to be headed, some people, a lot of people's preference, is going to be headed by Elizabeth Warren. So she had been, because of Harry Reid, because of his connection to the grassroots, had tapped her to oversee the TARP bailout money. And she said, when she got in there, she's like, look, we need some sort of agency to protect people from these predatory lenders. Um, so they were going to make her head of it, but a lot of people don't want that. Also, in the meantime, you also have, during the ACA fight, Ted Kennedy dies. They lose the seat in Massachusetts to this guy, Scott Brown, who, uh, and when uh, he wins against Martha Coakley, who was a Massachusetts attorney general who decides to go on vacation right after she wins her primary because she just thinks she has this thing in the bag. 80% of the people who don't vote in that election who had voted for Obama, actually, sorry, 80% of the combination of people who did not vote and people who went from Obama to Scott Brown, 80% of them said they wanted a public option in the health care bill. All right. So, again, we got to drive home this reality that people like policies that benefit their lives. You know, it's political malpractice. Anyway, so Warren does not become the chairman of this, the chairwoman of the CFPB, but uh, thanks to all like this online organization, she gets drafted to run for Senate. She does it. 2011, she beats Scott Brown. And a lot of the infrastructure that went on to help the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 started with Warren because there was a campaign draft Warren. Uh, she didn't run in 2016, so all those emails just went to Bernie. So this is, as we're kind of rounding out here, I think one of the interesting aspects of this book is the Warren-Bernie divide in Grimm's view is a little bit overhyped because Bernie had been in in politics for a while. He had been in the House of Representatives. He had been in the Senate. He helped form the House Progressive Caucus, which went on to be pretty big. And so it included a lot of the Nancy Pelosi's of the world. It sort of watered down the thing. It's not like he started a, a Democratic Socialist Caucus, right. which at the time would have just been him. But he didn't <laughs> consolidate... This is a nerd that made a one-man club. <laughs> yeah. He, he didn't consolidate the little clout that he did have among people. And Warren uh, was pretty different in Grimm's view. She um, said at the time that the uh, CFPB was up for a vote that she either wanted a strong Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, she either wanted that, or she wanted a, a quote-unquote, lot of blood and teeth on the floor, Dang. is what she said. So the, the Progressive Caucus, meanwhile, is like 
pushing for this stuff, the a strong banking bill, CFPB, public option, but they're not able to like get their members to commit to it, to the to, to be a, a counterweight to the blue dogs. And this is in part because there there's a split between the two chairs of the Progressive Caucus. You have uh, Lynn Woolsey, who is progressive, but she doesn't want to work with outside groups. She doesn't want to work with people who will mobilize activists, voters to call their members of Congress and that stuff. There's actually a story in the book about how, I think it's during the early fights for the ACA, the Obama for America list sends emails out to, to people who say, like, hey, show up to your uh, member of Congress's town meeting and tell them what to do. And there are a couple of members of Congress who are like, offended at that they're like how how dare you like uh sick uh, sick your fucking uh plebes on us yeah um and they backed off it basically dissolved the the organizing uh, obama's um organization that he'd started during his campaign went on to be organizing for organizing for america it uh was put on the dnc and kind of gutted but you have a lot of energy still on the grassroots and you have a chairman of the a co-chair of the house progressive caucus in Raul Grajalva, who wants to utilize that. He wants to use all this grassroots energy. The problem is Grajalva, who has had a background in community organizing, he had worked with Dolores de la Huerta. He's a, a solid guy, was, I believe, the first member of Congress to endorse Bernie in 2016. He also is drunk 70% of the time. <laughs> That's a big part of the book. The book actually opens in... Tune In, which is a bar right next to the Capitol, and there's a uh, party going on after they pass the ACA, and Joe Crowley is buying people shots. He's with a bunch of lobbyists, and they're, like, patting themselves on the back for how good this is going to be for the insurance industry. Yeah. And Raul Grijalva is just sitting in the corner of the beer in a shot. And at one point, Ryan Grimm is talking to somebody who's like, yeah, he's, Raul's, like, always at Tune In. He's, like, a regular there. And... <laughs> And the guy's like, no, he's not. There's no member of Congress that's a regular at a bar right next to the Capitol. And he says, are you sure? Like, and look at Raul Grijalva. And, and this guy was like, oh, <laughs> I didn't know he was a member of Congress. Sloppy. I just thought he hung out here. I just thought he was a random guy. He's doing the Bukowski to all my friends. <laughs> yeah. He gets, right, he, he slams shots of whiskey and then writes progressive legislation on a typewriter. <laughs> like, yeah, like Bukowski. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, almost done here. I'm, so basically, if I stopped reading, I, I, I wrote, I read a lot for three days. I'm uh, at, to, at page 229 where they go to the present situation in AOC. Um, but up until then, there's a marginal left in the United States, a marginal reformist left. And it's mostly through groups like MoveOn.org, Daily Cost, and stuff like that, Firedog Lake. They are able to raise some issues, but they are not, like, really grounded in real life in communities. And they are not uh, that, I guess, politically, to put it charitably, doctrinaire. They don't have a strong, like, theoretical grounding in... They're, they're capitalists. They're, they're liberals. Mm -hmm. And so now we have an opportunity to where the, the country is much more open to left-wing ideas and the grassroots is a lot more left-wing. And I think that's in part thanks to Bernie Sanders. Uh, I think, I tweeted about this the other day, the fact that it was Bernie who ran in 2016 and not Warren was a huge boost to the radical left because if Warren had run, I think there's a good ch chance she would have won. Yeah. But nobody would be talking about socialism. The mere yeah. fact that Sanders calls himself a socialist opens up a huge new terrain of thought and debate. Yeah, I mean, the most important thing that Bernie did is probably just open up that terrain. And, uh, you know, I mean, we're a bunch of fucking radical leftists. You know, we're not. Yeah. Our main thing isn't always the presidential right. race anyways, you know. So it's not going to go away no matter who wins. Yeah. My worry is that she gets into office um, she's called a socialist anyway from the right. People on the left that aren't paying much attention, like liberals and stuff, think that's socialism. And then she isn't able to accomplish certain things, and that 
then uh, collectively moves the the uh, you know the 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 co- the, collect- the the conventional wisdom the the collective idea not for us but for the on the main American stage of what socialism is like back like I think she might undo what Bernie did if we're like that's socialism and then it didn't fucking work and then people go well, okay how about something else things might swing in the other direction but you know what the fuck yeah well but the fact that she says she's not a socialist will I think illustrate that like this isn't socialism and and they're her faults uh, if she's elected uh, the the shortcomings I think will be for a lack of socialist politics um, the fact that she and in all fairness, Bernie is not in favor of this either, is not willing to actually nationalize and expropriate the banks. They just want to regulate them, or in Bernie's case, break them up. Um, a socialist would say, you got to seize them, you got to take control of them, make them publicly owned assets. Yeah. Um, another thing... Another well, people called Obama a socialist, yeah, you know? exactly, which is well, a gift, but, okay. the fact that... I guess that was before what you're talking about with uh, Bernie changing everything and... yeah. But the fact, but the, I think like the, you know they've they've yelled socialist so many times. It's like what you know the the boogeyman isn't that scary anymore. He's in the room. He's he's here. He's hanging out. He's not eating you. Yeah, and there's just uh, younger voters also every race. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, but one of the and I guess to close with this, one of the benefits too, I think to, to Bernie from my perspective as somebody who um, had to take two showers before I registered as a Democrat. Uh, is he's n- not really a Democrat. I mean, that's kind of the the, uh, the truth. Like, he's in- independent. And what we need, I do believe, is a restructuring of the electoral system. Um, I don't know that it's going to happen, but from a sort of... Uh, it's a question of perspective. The party system... A lot of socialists, I, I, and I'm sure there are a lot of leftists who are not going to like this book, which, uh, by the way, uh, one of the reasons is it throws around leftist a lot. Um, you know, Scoop Jackson, senator from Washington, was not a leftist, as he's called. Like, uh, I, I am not one of these uh, no true Scotsman people who are like, oh, you're only a leftist if you agree with my revolutionary edict 99 or whatever. Yeah. But I think we toss it around a little too much. Like, it, if you're an elected official in the United States, chances are you're not really a leftist. You probably believe in some form of state capitalism. But that being said, the mission to create an independent working class party is one that goes back a long time in the United States, and it's a laudable one. But I think we too often apply the rhetoric from back then to um, today, where, where the definition of party from that time. Um, you know, because if you're viewing a party as a ballot line, then yeah, the Democrats are a capitalist party. But if you're viewing a party as the base of support, the infrastructure, the fundraising mechanisms, it's a split. It's a nebulous thing. And our organization that we're in, DSA, has a chance to be a party without a party. So we will use the Democratic ballot line in most cases, but I have yet to see a convincing argument about how that will like somehow suck us into the fold of the establishment. That could happen, but there's nothing. It, people talk th- about this in like very metaphysical terms, like by voting Democrat, you know, something weird Hegelian thing is happening and, and yeah. we're being infiltrated by this capitalist party. It's like, and, and I asked this to Ryan Grimm when I went to his book talk on uh, earlier this week. Does he think that the using the Democratic ballot line should be a stepping stone to a full third party? And he basically said, look, this is a, until you rewrite the parliamentary laws and create a different system, this is going to be two parties. The question is, what, how would a new party be any different from the old one? You know, you slap a new name on it. You still have those, those uh, divisions, those factions. Um, and, you know, as he said, like, you got to have that fight anyway. You got to, these are people, if you uh, run with a, on a non-democratic ballot line, you're still going to have to fight establishment Democrats. So you might as well have it on their own, their own turf. Um, 
And he, so he has an interesting perspective too, because he kind of came up during the anti-globalization movement, which was this very sort of tenuous alliance between anarchists and social democrats, which is, I guess, the box I would put Ryan Grimm in, because he had the Cold War ending, so nobody really wanted to embrace socialism, mm. in even in the late 90s. Uh, so you had full-on, we need insurrection revolution, or we need social democracy, sort of just a, a, a more progressive version of what uh, the Democrats wanted. And a lot of those votes went to Nader. I asked him about Nader. He said that, um, look, you're shooting yourself in the foot. If, if Nader had run in a Democratic primary, we might be living in a fucking different world. But he chose not to because of this weird relationship with his father who told him to never join one of the two parties. <laughs> um, so back then, the Bible, as he puts it, of like sort of the anti-globalization movement was no logo. It's like we got to oppose brands. That's in, intrinsically part of this like awful exploitative system, our brands. And today, kids understand not only that socialism is something we should embrace, but brands aren't necessarily bad. It's like we don't need to have no logo, just like, as he puts it, good logo. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So like yeah, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing inherently about a brand that's shitty. It's like, is it? You can have a socialist brand. Yeah. Or a, and that's kind of what we're seeing now. Oof, man. Okay, that just made me think about a ton of shit. Uh, but we are so far. Yeah. Into this, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That always kind of bugged me about millennials and Zoomers is that they are so comfortable with a lot of corporate concepts and a lot of like the brand culture and shit but um i also think i'm being a crotchety old punk (laughs) i'm like you know no we were all supposed to be against the entirety of this and now i'm learning from my younger friends a little bit that uh yeah like what you just said uh you know this is work within it because it's a, a reality or something or you know i'm like a gen x uh a, a culture jammer or whatever right <laughs> yeah which is a brand that was a yeah. brand yeah, yeah. no i mean as naomi klein famously said she is a brand she just hopes to be a crappy one you know uh yeah. how about we make a brand that's for fucking an egalitarian society what was her book about that no logo oh no logo oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. right yeah I it's got we- a good brand and this is a great brand. No logo. Look at this logo. No it's nice. It's a red sign. Black font. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have a logo. Fuck. Fuck. Yeah. We're a brand. Fuck. We're a brand. It's okay. It's okay to be a brand. All right. Well, um, my brain's kind of fried from podcasting all day. Yeah. Any final thoughts on this? I'll just try and follow what you're talking about. Basically, we got to just rob the electability argument from the centrists. Rob the pragmatic argument from the centrist. Point out to them, show them, drive the point home that they are the idealists, they are the pie in the skyers, they are not in touch with reality. All right, I like it. Hardcore industry. I think this is like an evergreen, so we yeah, who knows? Fuck it, I don't Maybe know. Maybe this will come out when <laughs> Elizabeth Warren is president. Pa- Patreon, sign up for the Patreon yeah. for free shit. For, not for free shit. Once you pay for it, it's Unless free. Unless this is on Patreon already. Who knows? Who knows, Who knows? where this will end up? Yeah. I'll just add shit onto it. Okay. All right, bye.